Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome, friends, to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host, and today we have with us Kirsty Miles, who is our team lead over in Southern Pines. Kirsty, welcome and introduce yourself. Kirsty Miles, I manage Purple Team in Southern Pines, uh, several contract sites, including Sand Hills Children's Center, Rayford CDC, and the Southern Pines office. I've been with PDT for nine years now. I'm still going strong. (laughs) Well, yeah, and thanks for being with us, Kirsty. I really do appreciate it. You've got a big job over there, a lot of good team and a lot of stuff going on, a lot of contract sites. So I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to do this podcast today with me. And I think it's also important to mention right now that Kirsty is at one of our clinics recording this. So if you hear little people noise in the background, don't be afraid. It's little people. It is what it is. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. So just keep rolling with it. That's what we do. We just roll with it. Yes. So so if you hear any noise in the background, it's our little PDT people, peeps, our PDT peeps, that's what I call them. So thanks, Kirstie, for being here with us today. Kirstie and I are talking today about managing medical management. Kirstie, I appreciate you being here with us to do this because I think PTs come good at knowing how to do this. OTs and speech, not as much. I think, this is my personal theory, I don't know, in graduate school, I didn't get as much training on this particular piece. And so I think some of it you get in your clinicals, I guess. And I guess this depends on wherever your clinicals are as to how much interaction you get with other medical staff. And I know that when I got out of graduate school and where I was working first, there was a lot of interaction with medical staff of various disciplines. You know, I had nurses, doctors, PTs, OTs, psychologists, nutritionists, social workers. I had lots of people that I interacted with on a regular basis. And so it just got easy to medically manage a case. You know, the cases I was working on, it just got to be sort of second nature for me just to talk to other professionals or make referrals or discuss with the doctor progress or things like that. But I think it was sort of forced upon me. I had to do it. I had to get good at it or I really my child wouldn't get what they needed and I really wasn't okay with that. So but I think PTs just come knowing how to do that. Can you sort of speak to your background? I don't know. Yes, I feel that I was very fortunate in what I was taught in school and also in my clinical experience. One of my inpatient rehab clinicals was at Jefferson University. My clinical instructor, we actually still keep in touch a little bit today. And she was phenomenal. She actually taught one of our courses as well. But in that clinical, I was in the inpatient rehab and one day a week they would do a team meeting where they would bring in all the therapies, the doctor, if there was any extra like nutritionist or anybody that needed to be in that meeting, they would basically do a rundown of all the patients on the caseload. So it would bring everybody up to speed on what was going on. And my clinical instructor very early on kind of threw me in and was like, well, this is just a skill that you're going to have to learn. (laughs) And so she was like, here's what you're going to talk about. And you got this patient today. And so it kind of put you face to face with the doctor. So that kind of that fear was like, irrational. Like there was nothing to be afraid of in talking to them because you're going in with your side of what your discipline is working on. And so that was a really good experience. Mm -hmm. And I take that with me today when I have a student 
if there's an opportunity to speak to a doctor or make a phone call or make a referral, it definitely needs to be worked on with the students so that they have that comfort level, you know, moving on into their career. Yep. And I think we owe it to them to show them how to do that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. And really what we're talking about when we're discussing managing medical management is communicating with doctors, communicating with therapists, teachers, social workers, nutritionists, whoever is involved in this particular child's case. It's really, we're just talking about how to communicate best with other medical professionals so that you're able to get what you need done for this child. So we're talking about in different ways. We're talking about letters of medical necessity. So written communication, we're talking about verbal communication, when to talk, who to talk to, why you would even need to talk to somebody about how to make referrals, how it's appropriate to make referrals. So we're going to sort of address all of those areas in this podcast today. And hopefully at the end of it, you'll feel like you've got a better understanding for how to communicate with others and when and why to communicate with others about your little person you're seeing. So I think that background was good. I think also one thing that does prevent people from talking to other professionals about their kids or maybe making a referral or writing a letter of medical necessity. I think one thing that or even realizing, hey, I need to write this or I need to communicate something is when you sort of are working in isolation. So if you're a speech therapist that really maybe is doing home health and you don't really interact with other people a lot during the day or ever, you sort of forget there's other people out there working with this patient maybe, you know, and you sort of start to forget maybe to to ask questions. Who else is this child or adult seeing or something? So basically what I'm trying to say is one of the main reasons people don't communicate is sort of isolation. And now I'm asking you, what else do you think? Yeah, it makes it not easy to communicate if you're not coming and crossing paths with that person, which I think is something that is very unique about PDT and that, you know, we do cross paths with our coworkers more often than not. So it makes the communication interdisciplinary much easier, but communicating with doctors and being in the home could be a little bit more difficult. So I guess we'll talk about strategies and ways to do that effectively and not necessarily making it harder on you. Yeah. I think one of the first things we need to talk about is how do you find out who's involved with this child's medical case? And I usually find that out when I do the initial eval. So I get in my birth history, I am asking, you know, about milestones and when the child started moving or talking and everything else, my regular milestone questions and function questions and getting information from the parent. But then I also ask, what other therapies is your child getting? Who else do they see? What other doctors are involved? And I sometimes have to ask more questions than just what other doctors are involved. I have to say, okay, are there feeding problems? And they'll say, oh, well, he throws up all the time. And so I'll say, well, do you see anybody for reflux? Has there been ear infections? Have you ever been to a doctor who... You know, sometimes ear, nose, and throat doctor or otolaryngologist, they may not call the doctor an ENT or otolaryngologist. They may call them, oh, we saw a specialist about the child's ears. So sometimes I have to ask questions around, you know, has he ever seen anybody for these ear infections besides your regular pediatrician? You know, that kind of thing. So I have to sometimes dig deep about finding out who's involved in this child's medical case. And sometimes you can find it like we work with the infant toddler program and all the providers will be on that service delivery page. So yeah. there's another way to find kind of who's providing some care. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Cause a lot of times the patients will come in with reports from other specialists. They come in and just like what you're talking about with, if the child has an IFSP or an IEP, usually the other people are listed in there and that's what you're mm-hmm. talking about on mm-hmm. the service delivery page. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the IFSP. So that's how we find out who all is involved. And then sometimes, you know, you can't find it all out in the initial eval. 
I've had situations where I did the evaluation, I've treated the child for one or two times, and then the parents will say, oh, well, gosh, yeah, we were seeing a OT up at Duke for sensory integration issues, you know, that kind of thing, but that didn't come out in the initial eval. So sometimes people get added to the cases the time goes on. Or I've been seeing a child for a while, and then all of a sudden, the parents will tell me, oh, well, hey, look, he, he just started getting speech therapy in school last week. We just got an IEP, and it got written. So then I saw all of a sudden a new person that I need to communicate with to best manage this child's medical case. Okay, so Kirstie, let's first talk about referrals and how to best communicate with referral sources. I spend a decent amount of time here at our admin office at PDT, and so one of the things that we work really hard here to do is to communicate back to our referral sources. The way we see it is if a doctor has referred a patient to us, you know, that's their patient, and they've said, hey, look, this patient has this problem that I'm concerned about, and he or she is trusting us to make sure that we take care or work on that issue. So we need to communicate back to them, here's what's happening with your patient. It's now also our patient. But we think that communication is really important so that we can constantly tell the doctor, hey, look, here's what's happening with this patient that you referred to us. You trusted us enough to take care of this patient in this way for you. So we need to communicate back with you what's happening, what's going on. So after the time a therapist does an evaluation of some sort with a child, then we will communicate you know, we would send a copy of the eval to the doctor, send daily notes if necessary, but mostly it's just the evals. So when you're doing an initial evaluation with the child, then I think it's important also to communicate with your referral source, but also to get a good inventory of all the people that are involved in that child's medical case. And then you need to decide, who do I need to communicate with immediately, and who do I need to just know about, so potentially may have to communicate with them in the future. And one thing on the communicating with anybody under that that's caring for that child would be to make sure that there is a release signed by the parent on file. Good point. Yeah. Always get a medical release of information. This is what I tell people all the time. Anytime you think, hmm, wonder if I should get a release signed, get a release signed. <laughs> <laughs> Same rule goes true for, hmm, should I write that down? Write that down. Yeah. If ever that thought crosses in your mind, then always write that down and get a release. So rules of thumb, words to live by. Okay. So those are two ways to communicate and to manage your medical case. Also, let's talk about letters of medical necessity. You write those all the time, Kirstie, and I know you coach people on how to write those all the time. So why don't you talk about what makes a good letter of medical necessity? The first thing that we talk about is, you know, when you have a student, you want to teach them how to write a letter from scratch. So what it really looks like and what are the key points that need to be in it. But once we've got people employed with us, it's kind of like, well, let's not recreate the wheel. If there's already a letter out there, let's use that as a template and a guide. There are even things on different websites, like if you're going after a Riften chair, don't do a letter because they have a template on their website. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. That's pushing the easy button. Yes. And all you have to do is go in and fill in what parts you're needing and justify those. It breaks it all down for you. Also, use your resources. If you're working with a vendor and getting equipment, a lot of times they can give you the guidelines and the criteria that you have to have in that letter for it to not get kicked back. So get that up front so you know what you need to point out so you're not having to do it twice. Yeah, exactly. Totally. They make it easy. And pretty much you start out with their name, the date, to whom it may concern, and then you're doing a history of the child, what their present level is, the equipment you're recommending, you have to justify every part when you recommend equipment. And then 
why? Why do they need that piece? What is it going to do for them? And really, insurances are wanting to make sure that it's used in the home, whether it's a stander, a gate trainer, a wheelchair, a power wheelchair. It has to be used in the home. Is there a way to transport it? So sometimes you might be like, what kind of car do you have? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so all of those factors play in when you're writing a good letter of medical necessity. And I think it's important to say, too, when you're writing this letter of medical necessity, you're not really writing it to the doctor to get them to approve anything. You're writing it to the insurance company to get the insurance yes. company to, to approve it. So you need to really spell out and justify. Spell out what you want, why you want it, and justify, justify, justify why you want that. Yes. Make a good case for it or you're not going to get it. And sometimes it may seem to you like, well, they have this diagnosis. Isn't it pretty obvious? No. No. Mm-mm. It's not. <laughs> no, no. Uh-uh. That's the short answer. It's not. You have to justify it. We just live in a world now where there's gatekeeping systems in place for all insurances. There's gatekeepers everywhere. And so you have to justify what you need to get what you want for this child. That's just the way it is. Prior authorization is gatekeeping. Letter of medical necessity is gatekeeping. You have to justify what you want for this child. And that's the only way to do it is write a good letter of medical necessity. And you can't just say, hey, because the child looks pretty. And a lot of times they're not going to flat out deny it. They might write for additional information. Right. You'll get another chance. So don't be afraid to put in what you need or, you know, what it is you're going after. You have to remember, though, it has to be medically necessary. And they always ask, have you explored less expensive options? Right. (laughs) So the one you're going for, why is this the one you need? Right. So you have to know when you're making that appointment with a vendor, look at multiple options and be able to rule out why these ones aren't going to work and why you have to have that one. And I think vendors are a valuable resource in this process, too, because they know, look, write it like this. And they can answer all those questions right there. If you're new at writing letters of medical necessity, use the vendor because they already have all the answers. Yep. Most of them. But you know, Kirsty, you were talking a second ago about you'll get another chance to write it if you know the insurance company will say, well, we need more information. But that's also a time zapper because you have to write a letter and then justify again. So it's important just from the get-go. If you yeah. need help, ask the vendors, ask other therapists that have written them before and look for resources. You know, like you said, like at the Riften, they've got a template already for you because you really don't want to have a missing information where, and you have to basically, because you're basically, you're rewriting the letter all over again. You really only want to do it once unless you just like enjoy doing paperwork all weekend long, which I'm not (laughs) down with. So if you don't enjoy that, then you just want to try to write it only one time and just put in there what the insurance company really wants. I've had some cases where, you know, I've tried to get a power wheelchair for a four-year-old that Mm. one doctor said, uh, no, I mean, no, do you know how much they cost? And I'm like, do you know it's going to make her as independent as possible? (laughs) (laughs) Answer the question with the question. I like it. So all I did was I closed that door and I was like, hmm, what other doctors does she see? Let's right. send it to this one, this one, this one, and this one. One of them's going to approve it, and they did. <laughs> there you go. Know your audience. Yeah. So when you're dealing with that, you know, and with that particular child, what came back was, okay, we'll approve the chair, but do they own the home? No, mm. they don't own their home. So then we had to regroup, and the brunt of it was they have to have a ramp. for them to approve a wheelchair. So what I wrote back to them was we made all these additional arrangements, got some first and families to come help. And we ended up coordinating with a Boy Scout group that agreed to build that as a project. 
All I wrote back to Medicaid was, we are in the works of coordinating with a Boy Scout group and funding is coming from First and Families Care to provide a ramp at the home that they are renting. They have permission to put the ramp on the home and -hmm. it will be removed if they leave and Medicaid approved the chair. There you go. It was just a ramp issue, not even a chair Uh issue. So it was like, just don't give up. Right. Like, don't throw in the towel and be like, okay, well, they said no. Yeah, exactly. You got to keep working at it. You know, success looks like a lot of hard work. <laughs> and that was, that was a huge accomplishment. But man, when she got that chair, she was so happy. She started talking. Wow. And I'm like, wow, this little girl that didn't have a means of movement, she loved to spin circles in her chair. <laughs> and she would just smile. And I'm like, well, for a typical child that gets to roll around on the floor and sure. play, you know, yeah. like she's getting all that movement now that she didn't get before. Get, so get it before. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it's worth it. You got to keep on keeping on, but it's worth it. Yeah. it. Boy, when you get them approved, you feel like you've done something. Oh, like, yeah. All right, I did it. Kind of like getting like an A plus on a final exam. Like, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Studied hard and it paid off. So a good letter of medical necessity, that's what you do. But really the main takeaway from that is justification for why you want the service. Don't give up and use your resources and find out the information that basically the insurance company wants before you write the letter. So you only have to write it one time. Okay. Another important topic to discuss with this managing medical management is communicating with doctor's offices and when to call, when not to call and who to talk to. Because I call doctor's offices a lot as it's related to kids, but I don't always want to talk to the doctor. So, for example, for me, I'm calling a doctor's office. I'm requesting a referral for a modified barium swallow study. Sometimes I want to talk to the doctor about that, but sometimes I just want to talk to the nurse. And the reason I want to talk to the nurse may be, I mean, it's not a hard sell. You know, I mean, there's, I've got plenty of justification for what I want. I think there's risk of aspiration. I'm worried the child may be aspirating. So... I've got all kinds of documentation for why in my clinical assessment for why I want this, but really I just need to get this to the nurse because he's going to sign the order for this because of all the reason I've got. It's just I need to get it a nurse to sort of expedite that process as fast as possible. Now, if the doctor has questions, then he'll call me back and I can talk to him about it. But normally nine times out of 10, the doctor doesn't call me. They already have the justification and they kind of know maybe if they're sending a child to me anyway for a feeding eval there's already some worry or some concern on the doctor's part. And so if I'm requested a modified barium swallow study, that's not a hard sell. I've got documentation for doing it, and I send that to the nurse. Usually I just need a quick way to get the order from the doctor to the hospital where I want the modified barium swallow study to happen. And so I give all that information to the nurse. Here's the patient. Here's why I want this. Here's what I was concerned about. Here's where I want you to send the doctor's order you know, here's the person you actually send it to. Here's the fax number. I do all the legwork for them. So really the doctor's office is just pushing the easy button because I just want to get what I want to get for this patient. And so in that situation, it's not always important for me to talk to the doctor unless they have questions. It's also sometimes I've found through the years that most pediatricians' offices have referral people. And those are the people that they sort of coordinate the referrals and set up the referrals for patients. And sometimes it's helpful to talk to them even. Like if I'm worried about, if I can't get to the nurse, I'll sometimes talk to the referral person. If I've evaluated a child and I'm worried about this child having enlarged adenoids or enlarged tonsils, sometimes calling the referral person will also get me what I need quickly as well. Of course, the doctor has to sign off on the order and everything, but the referral person can sometimes make that happen faster than the doctor can. So for you, when you're calling the doctor's offices, are you talking to the doctor more or other people, Kirsty? I am talking to the nurse primarily. You know, if I'm working with a child that has torticollis and I think maybe there'd be underlying reflux, 
-hmm. And really, we have to medically manage that underlying reflux in order to get really where we need to be in therapy. I'll call and speak with the nurse and just say, you know, we're going to have this patient come back in for an appointment with the doctor, but I wanted to give you a heads up on really what they're coming in for. Gotcha. And I might do it while the mom is there in therapy. So it's not doing it outside of our therapy session. Mm -hmm. I've done the same thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, just to make it part of the session, because really that's the education piece that needs to happen. Well, and you want parent buy-in too. Mm -hmm. So if you call the doctor's office to try to get a referral, for example, for the reflux or for an ENT or whatever, then you want the parent buy-in because you don't want to call the office and be like, I want this child to go here and then the parent not take them. That's no good. That doesn't help you either. So you want the parent buy-in. And normally if they're in the room with you, you get better parent buy-in. Or what I have done is, you know, I recommend the family go home and make the appointment. And I say, hey, when you get to the doctor, when is it on, you know, Friday right. at nine o'clock, when you get to the doctor's office and you're in there with the doctor, call me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that that way we don't have to play phone tag. Like it, that's more if there's something that we really need to relate to the doctor and we don't feel like going through the nurse, through the doctor is appropriate. That might be a case where like, hey, I'm really concerned about this and this and this, and I'm seeing this developmentally. Like, I think we may need to consider sending him up to Chapel Hill to go to neuro. Mm -hmm. That would be a question that I'd maybe have with the doctor over the phone rather than just sending the parent in for an appointment. So if it's not very cut and dry, for example, like, you know, the child's had 10 ear infections and their speech is completely unintelligible and they snore really loudly and they're breathing out of their mouth, not their nose. To me, that's pretty cut and dry ENT. I mean, the Mm -hmm. child needs to go to the ear, nose, and throat doctor. So that one, Tom will talk to the nurse. I'm not going to get any pushback from the pediatrician on that one at all or the family physician on that. They're just going to send them to the ENT. But if you're discussing more of a, like, I've noticed some neurologic, you know, concerns with this child or whatever they are, and you're thinking they need to see a neurologist, you know, maybe less cut and dry things, more of maybe a discussion. Here's what I'm seeing in therapy. Do you think this referral will be appropriate? So you're really having more of a discussion, problem-solving thing with the doctor. That's more of a doctor-to-therapist conversation. Right, because it's not going to sit well if you're like, well, here's what I see. They need to go to neuro. No, <laughs> it's not going to sit well. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. Uh, you have to sort of say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in therapy, and here's what I would suggest. If you think this is appropriate, this is what I would suggest. I say that mm-hmm. a lot. I've done that before where uh, patients for speech therapy, for PT, you probably guys do it a decent amount with neurology and stuff. I hear about it a lot. But for speech, sometimes I'll have that issue with voice clients. The voice quality is not the best, and so I'll think they'll need to go to the ENT, but it's a little less cut and dry than like adenoids, tonsils, that kind of thing. Or tubes in the ears, you know, if the child needs tubes or whatever, then it's a little less cut and dry for maybe some voice clients. The same thing applies true for me in that situation. A funny little aside in dealing with the doctor's offices, I think too insurance comes into play and knowing who the Mm -hmm. patient's insurance is because some insurances will require a referral and some you can make your appointment directly with a specialist. So from a personal standpoint, my second born we started having a lot of ear infections and I'd already been down this road with the firstborn. So I'm like, well, I'm not doing this game. We're not going to keep going and getting medicine and antibiotics and all this other stuff. So after like the third or fourth ear infection, which I know that's not the criteria, but I called up the ENT and I said, I need to schedule surgery. And she was like, huh? And I was like, yes. That's awesome. Surgery. surgery. And she's like, well, do you need to see the ENT? I'm like, nope. This surgery. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, 
just you know, bypass my, my other one was a patient there and we, we just need tubes. And she was like, well, I was like, yeah, we've already been on antibiotic, antibiotic. He has recurrent otitis media, fluids not resolving. And she was like, okay. Um, and she gave me a pre-op date and I was like, Did she do. really? <laughs> yeah. Really? No you way. Know. You bypassed the whole, oh my gosh. Now that's, that's like managing medical management on steroids. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I don't have time to go to five different places to make this happen. So um, I'm just going to go right to the source and here we go. <laughs> That's not typical, I don't think. <laughs> That's like literally on steroids. <laughs> But it worked. It did work. I rock on. Well, if you've already been down that road one time, especially with tubes, you kind of know the deal. Like, look, they're coming. It's already had three ear infections that never cleared up. Two more are coming, baby. And that's the criteria is five. Yeah. (laughs) It's only November. It's not a good. No, exactly. I understand that. I had three kids have tubes. I totally understand that. So um, it's November. It's not, we're not clearing up till like April. (laughs) And he can't hear. Right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, I understand that. That's great. Well, I think you bring an important point up, though, whether you meant to or not. I think in every doctor's office, if you're a therapist, you know, there's only probably a certain number of pediatricians in the town or situation you're working in, a certain number of specialists. I think it's very important to make a friend be a friend. So if you can find a friend at the doctor's office in a nurse or the referral person or whatever, it gives you much faster access to the doctor, and it gives you much faster access to getting the information in front of the doctor that you want. You know, make a friend, be a friend. (laughs) Yes, because your life can be very difficult if you don't. Well, you won't get anything you want if you're not. Nice. (laughs) You really won't get diddly squat. They'll be like, "Mm, no, hang up the phone on her. So I think that's important. Okay, well, Kirsty, you told your story, but yours wasn't so crazy. But I've got a very crazy medical management story and does involve my own child. She was about six months of age, where at that point, I think when you've had a new baby, you're kind of getting to be normal again, but you're really not. So she was about six months of age, and I noticed every time I laid her down to change her diaper, she would turn beet red, and she would stiffen up her arms and her legs. And, of course, I'm really not normal yet, so I decided that she was having seizures. Every time I laid her down to change her diaper, I was like, she's having a seizure. She's having a seizure. And so I called the pediatrician's office, and I said, my child is having seizures, and I need to see the doctor right now, and I'm going to pack my bags now because I want to be airlifted to Duke. (laughs) And so, I mean, this is my third child. So the lady at the front desk was like, she knew me. (laughs) Thank goodness. And she goes, Okay, well, Hayden, we can get you in. Can you get here in 30 minutes? I said, yes, I can get here in 30 minutes. Actually, she asked me a lot more questions about the whole seizure thing. And she probably at that point realized this woman has lost her ever-living love of mind. Let me just get her in in 30 minutes before she does this herself or this child's in bodily harm. I don't know what. So she got me in. We saw the doctor. The doctor walked in the door and I said, this child's having seizures. My bags are packed and her bags are packed. And I am ready to be airlifted to Duke right now. My sitter is at home and she's prepared to stay late. And he's like, <laughs> and he goes, okay. And he goes, you're ready to leave right now? And I said, yes. Now, I'm not sure what I thought would happen. I don't know if they put the helicopter down in the parking lot or on the roof or what I thought was going to go down, but or they were going to stop traffic. I don't know. But I just envisioned us getting on the helicopter and being flown to Duke that minute. And so he goes, well, and he started asking me some questions. He goes, so she does this every time you lay her down? And I said, yes, every time I lay her down to change her diaper, she does this. And he goes, are you normally changing her diaper right after you feed her? And I was like, yes, I am. Like, big deal. And he goes, do you think it could be reflux? And I said, oh, well, it it could be. (laughs) And I was like, I said, I mean, and at that point, I realized all of a sudden, like, all my crazy sort of caught up with me at one moment. And I thought, 
yes, it's reflux, Hayden, duh, you know something about reflux, it's definitely reflux. But at that point, I was like, so like into my whole, like, I'm getting airlifted to Duke thing that I couldn't like come off of that that quickly. (laughs) So he had to like ease me off the ledge, like slowly. I was like, it could be reflux, but I'm not ready to rule out seizures yet. And I'm not sure. So I need for you to test her with whatever seizure test you've got. And he was like, I don't have a seizure test, but all right. (laughs) So we made it. But that was my managing medical management story. That's not the way to do things. (laughs) But he's the same pediatrician that still sees my children today. And so anyway. um, I'm um, glad he didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on me. He was like, oh, my gosh, this woman's lost her mind. And actually, the lady at the front desk still works there. But anyway, (laughs) I don't have to introduce myself anymore. I'm like, hey, I'm calling to make an appointment. She's like, hey, Hayden, how are you? So there are right ways and wrong ways. And I think, I guess, one point I was going to make with this story is, you know, if you go in there and you're bulldozed and you're like, it's going to be my way or the highway, again, you're not going to get anything you want. Uh-uh. Nothing. So whenever you're dealing with this, you have to think of these other people that are involved with this child as they're on your team. They're like an extension of your team. You know, here at PDT, we have PTOT speech on the same team working together. And so it's really easy and a great creative team situation. But the other therapist or other you know, medical practitioners that are out working are still a part of your extended team and dealing with this child. So, and you shouldn't be afraid to pick up the phone and call them and just talk Mm -hmm. to them and involve them. And, you know, a little bit of communication goes a very, very long way. It does. And it also establishes a relationship so that Mm -hmm. future children that go to that doctor, they're more readily available for you. Yeah, exactly. They are. And you sort of get a reputation of being consistent, being to Mm -hmm. the point, being on point. And so then they will take your calls or look at your stuff faster maybe than they might otherwise. Definitely. Yeah. I think just a little bit of communication does really help. Okay. So to recap this podcast, first thing is referrals. You have to communicate with your referral sources. You need to let them know what it is you're doing with this child. An evaluation communicates kind of initially what you're doing with the child, your plan of care, what you want to do, and then each subsequent evaluation just continues that good open communication. So the doctor or the referral source knows exactly what you're doing with this patient. They refer to you. That's number one that we talked about. Number two, letters of medical necessity. I think the big key word here, Kiersey, in my opinion, is justify. You have to, well, you have to really clearly write what's wrong, what you want to do, and why this equipment helps you do what you need to do. And remember, you're writing to the insurance company, and if at all possible, don't recreate the wheel, but find a template or somebody that's already done that LMN for somebody else. <laughs> Use your resources. Yes. Yes. Save um, yourself some time. <laughs> yes. Like, enjoy your weekend. And then the third thing is calling the doctor's offices. You need to know who you, you need to talk to. So you have to have a purpose for why you're calling. Know your purpose. Why am I calling? And then know who you want to talk to. Nurse, doctor, referral person, whoever. And get, get buy-in from the parents so that when you get this referral, they will take the child to where you want them to go. Make a friend, be a friend. Okay, that sizes it up. There's a lot of information in there. Also, I guess the main thing is don't be afraid to reach out and call people. Don't be afraid to call the doctor. Don't be afraid if you're the clinic speech therapist to call the therapist at school or, you know, send an email to the therapist at school. As long as you have a release of information, contact other professionals. But don't be afraid to do that. Be the first one to take the step because, you know, the other person may never. Well, that wraps us up here pretty good. Thank you, Kirsty, for helping me out with this topic. Thank you for having me. Kirstie's one of the best communicators with people. I just share this one quick story about Kirstie. We sat together in this continuing ed all day. Like she and I were in this continuing ed. It was a relatively small conference room. I was like witness to her like all of the day. First thing in the morning, like eight o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon. 
All I got to show for that day was I heard that continuing ed class. During that course of that day, Kirstie, somehow or another, got this kid who was like almost in a full body cast, who was in the hospital somewhere, a, do you remember this? A special car seat that like nobody has it at this car seat. It's like a, it's like a lay down in this, in the car car seat. I don't know. Is there a better name for it than that? Special <laughs> car seat. I have no idea. Anyway, somehow or another found this car seat, got it to this child at the hospital. The car seat wasn't with the child at the hospital. The car seat was like at a vendor. Then she had to coordinate, find the car seat, get the car seat from this vendor to this hospital, talk to the nurse at the hospital so that this child could leave the hospital in this car seat to go home. And I think you got him to keep the car seat. She did that and the continuing ed. All I did was in the continuing I was like, what, what, how, when did that happen? Like, <laughs> well, I was with you all day. <laughs> hey, like you said, make a friend, be a friend. Yes. You have resources out there. <laughs> yes, but you know? I don't know how you also clone yourself. But anyway, so but somehow <laughs> or another she did. So when we were coming up with this idea, I was like, well, Kirstie's got to be the one who does it because I've never seen anybody communicate as well with professionals <laughs> to manage a medical case better than Kirstie because she can rock it out. If, so if you can get that done, daggum. I don't know what else you can do. But anyway, it was impressive. <laughs> I was okay. like, you did what? 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 <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, so thank you, Kirstie. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com.